0: Welcome to Family History, Genealogy Made Easy. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. You probably have a lot of curiosity about your family history, but not a lot of time. And that's why I created this podcast. In each episode, I'm going to give you the tools that you need to uncover your family tree in quick and easy ways. In episodes 29 and 30, I talked one-on-one with Stephen Danko about immigration and naturalization records. I hope you got some great ideas as to how to find them and have had a chance to try some of those strategies out. But the strategy doesn't end when we finally locate that passenger list, no sir. In this episode, we're going to get the magnifying glass out and take an even closer look at these information-rich documents. I want to make sure that you're getting everything you can out of them. And I'm very pleased to say that Stephen Danko has graciously agreed to let us listen in on some excerpts from a recent presentation that he gave on the subject that focus in on the annotations that we may find on passenger lists, including references to special inquiry.
1: This is really, really bad. If somebody was marked SI or VSI. It means that the immigration officials were very concerned that there was some reason why the United States didn't want them in this country.
0: Number sequences that reference the naturalization process.
1: I found the markings on this manifest that I couldn't identify. And that's what led me to this investigation. And I'll show you some of the markings that I found and what they mean.
0: And many more marks and annotations that you may not have previously noticed but that could indicate a deeper story of your ancestors' immigration experience. Well, we certainly covered a lot of information about immigration and naturalization records in the last two episodes, and there were some areas that we touched on that I would like to talk more about specifically. Stephen mentioned in the interviews that we often find annotations on the passenger lists, particularly the more recent ones, and that while they may look insignificant, they really do have a meaning and can actually offer some more information about our ancestors if we just probe a little bit. So let's talk more about what these annotations might look like and what they mean. In this highlight from one of his presentations, Stephen Danko talks about when he first noticed the passenger list annotations and how they have evolved as the years have gone by.
1: Okay, so I found my grandparents' passenger manifests, and those of some of my aunts, uncles, and great aunts and great uncles. And I found the markings on those manifests that I couldn't identify. And that's what led me to this investigation. And I'll show you some of the, the markings that I found and what they mean. By 1910, the manifests extended from one page to two pages. And this is the first of two pages. Here, you can start to see some of these annotations I talked about. Here's one right here that says 1A4208-505-10341. And you can also see places where the manifest is stamped non-immigrant alien. I'll talk about these two very briefly here. This indication here is a reference to uh, an effort of that person to be naturalized. It's likely that in 1941, which is the date here, 10-3-1941, there was a request for a certificate of arrival for this person to prove that they arrived in the United States legally. And the information up front is an indication of the type of document that was requested. In this case, it's a Form 505, which I think was specific to New York City. And it indicates some additional information on how you might find their naturalization papers. So here, with this date of 10-3-41, that's a pretty good indication that this person applied for naturalization in 1941. These stamps that say non-alien indicate exactly that. This person was coming to the United States to visit. They didn't intend to stay here. And for the most part, Immigration officials didn't place those people under as much scrutiny as the ones who planned to stay. Because if somebody was in poor health or they didn't have a lot of money, but if they were planning to stay, that was okay. They could come in and leave. By 1910, there was information in the last column of the place of birth, and this can have the exact
0: village where the person lived, where the person was born. And for those looking for their
1: immigrant ancestors and their their places of birth, uh, that can be a very useful place to find them. In some cases, the place of birth might be misspelled, in which case you might have to do some uh, creative thinking in order to figure out where they really were born. By 1920, there's even more information. And here, the immigrant is asked, for example, purpose of trip, uh, whether they've been deported before. Even more information in 1930 and more information in 1940. So with time, more and more information was required. By 1940, they were asking, do you intend to overthrow the government? You can
0: imagine what every immigrant said to that question. Well, I'm guessing that your ancestors did not intend to overthrow the government and indeed answered that question correctly because, well, you're here, right? But that wasn't the only question that they had to answer or the only hoop that they had to jump through to enter the country. And many of the annotations that you come across on the passenger lists may have to do with some of those hoops. But before we get into the specific types of annotations and those hoops that they represent, um, let's do a recap with Stephen about when passenger lists were completed and when information was added throughout the process.
1: As I mentioned, there are a lot of annotations in these passenger lists. And the annotations were made at two different times. The first group are annotations that are made prior to or at the time of arrival. Now, realize that all of these passenger manifests were filled at the point of departure. They were not filled out in the United States, which brings us to the, the issue of, of people saying, my ancestor's name was changed in Ellis Island. But those papers were filled out in Europe. They came from Europe. They weren't filled out in the United States. And so the manifests were completely filled out at the point of departure. And then if the immigration officials or the the ship officials had to make some kind of change or notation on the passenger lists, they did so. These were examples of markings that were made to the passenger lists prior to or at the time of arrival. And that included such information as the contract number, a head tax number. Now, the I'll talk a little bit about these as I go down. The contract number might have been simply the number of the passenger's contract with the shipping agency. The head tax number, every immigrant who intended to stay in the United States had to pay a head tax. In most cases, their head tax was included in the cost of the ticket. So you won't see any kind of annotation for the head tax. For immigrants from England, you quite often see a separate marking that indicates that the head tax was paid. And even in some cases, if a person was not an immigrant if they were just visiting, sometimes they were asked to pay the head tax, even though they weren't required to. And that was sort of an inducement to make sure that the person left. When they left, they could get the the head tax refunded. As I mentioned all of these people on the lists, their names were entered in the port of departure. But not everybody whose name was entered on the list sailed. Some of them missed the ship, or they were determined to be too ill to sail. Or there might have been some other reason why the person didn't sail on on the ship. And in those cases, you'll see a notation that says, not shipped, N-O-B, meaning not on board did not sell, or canceled, or the entire line will be crossed out, often with like a grease pencil, so it'll go all the way across through all the information. A lot of times you can still read the information, but there'll just be one single line all the way across. If just one part of it, for example, if just the name is crossed out, that means something different. But if the entire line is crossed out, it means the person (coughs) did not sell, or, in some cases, it means they were listed on the manifest twice. If they were listed on the manifest twice, one of the entries was crossed out and the other one was left. One of the reasons why somebody might be listed on the manifest twice is uh, similar to if you're checking in for an airplane and you go up to the kiosk and put your information into the kiosk. And it says, would you like an upgrade to first class? Well, some people who were traveling in steerage or third class, maybe they did upgrade to second class or first class, in which case their name would be crossed out from the third class line and written in on the first class line. So somebody might be listed twice. If their name is crossed out and all their information is crossed out, that doesn't necessarily mean they didn't sail. It could mean that they sail in a different class or they're listed on another part of the manifest.
0: Well, coming up in our next segment, we are going to go over many more of the coded annotations and what they mean. We're back, and I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. In this segment, we are going to dig into the wide range of annotations you might come across on a passenger list. Some of them had dire consequences for your ancestors, but all of them are going to offer you a clearer picture of their immigration experience.
1: An X, a D, or a held, means that they were detained. The D means detained. They were detained for some reason, and I'll talk about the reasons that somebody might be detained a little bit later. And the other notation that's related is S-I or B-S-I which means special inquiry or board of special inquiry. This is really, really bad. If somebody was marked SI or B.S.I., it means that the immigration officials were very concerned that there was some reason why the United States didn't want them in this country. And they were held aside from everybody else. And usually a three-person uh, board would listen to their case and determine whether or not they were going to be admitted. USB, US born, or USC all mean that the person was born in the United States or a U.S. citizen. And the number that's a C followed by a number of numbers means that some kind of a certificate was issued. Uh, and this was often a certificate related to uh, naturalization or the fact that the person was uh, might have been leaving the country and coming back. In There are also annotations that are made after the time of arrival. And this could be years or decades after the person arrived here that notations were made on their original passenger manifest to indicate a number of things. Some of these records don't exist anymore. For example, these New York file numbers. We note that there were records made in New York for some passengers. However, those files no longer exist a re-entry permit number, if somebody was leaving the United States and coming back in, they wanted to make sure that the immigration officials knew that even though they weren't a citizen, that they had legally entered the country before and were legally allowed to come back in after they went back to visit family.
0: While so many of our ancestors made that journey from their homeland to America only once, It's important to remember that they could have traveled back and forth to visit family, and those passenger lists are just as valuable as their original immigration. And if they hadn't completed the naturalization process yet, then you may find an indication of that re-entry number or their citizenship status, as Stephen mentioned. Now, I haven't come across any of these situations in my own family tree, but I have when researching my husband's family. His grandfather returned to England to introduce his new bride to his extended family. But getting back to that initial immigration, as Stephen mentioned in our previous interview, depending on the time frame, your ancestor may have had to request a certificate of arrival when applying for citizenship. And if you haven't found their naturalization records yet, and are lucky enough to find a certificate of arrival annotation on their passenger list, then you're in luck and you will have a really good chance for tracking down those naturalization records. So let's listen back in as Stephen tells us more about the certificate of arrival.
1: The certificate of arrival number. Now a certificate of arrival was not always required. A certificate of arrival was required starting in 1926 for anybody who applied for citizenship who entered the country after 1906. So if you arrived before 1906, if you apply for citizenship, that was fine. You didn't need a certificate of arrival. But starting in the year 1926, anybody who entered after 1906 needed a certificate of arrival to prove that they had legally entered the country. And the way that they did that was they went back to the passenger manifest. The, uh, the immigration officials, the naturalization officials, went back to the passenger manifest, found their entry on the Passenger Manifest, and then once they found it and saw that they had easily entered the country, they issued a Certificate of Arrival and wrote on the manifest itself the Certificate of Arrival number and usually the date when the Certificate of Arrival was issued. All of that information is very useful if you're trying to find naturalization papers, because if a date is written, it shows you the time period in which to look for the naturalization papers. And the first two numbers are very interesting. The first two numbers indicate, first, where they applied for citizenship. The number one indicates that this was in the Northeast. So this would have been uh, Boston or, um, or a couple of other places that include one. The X definitely means that the person who was applying for citizenship didn't have to pay for the certificate of arrival. Some people had to pay for their certificate of arrival, some people did not. Mm -hmm. If there's an X here, it means that they did not have to pay, and quite often that means that they arrived before 1903. The rest of the number, the 151593 in this example, is the number on the certificate of arrival, and I'll show you an example of that. As I mentioned, the date of the certificate of arrival can be there too. A notation of CA means certificate of arrival, BL, verification of landing. The verification of landing is most often seen on manifests before 1906 because the uh, certificate of arrival was not required for anybody who came, who came in before 1906. So the officials simply called it verification of landing instead of a certificate of arrival. If you see WA, that means that a warrant of arrest was issued for that person. There are verification form numbers, such as 4040405. If a person's name is crossed out but the rest of the line is not, it means that probably their name was amended, and you should probably be able to find their amended name. This is because somebody's name was misspelled on the manifest or was otherwise incorrect. When somebody applied for citizenship, their name had to match what was on the manifest if the manifest was wrong, they had to get the manifest amended. There can also be notations of in-hospital, discharged hospital, or died in hospital.
0: Gosh, so many things could happen to an immigrant before their feet ever touched the landing dock for the ferry that took them from Ellis Island to the mainland. And some of the situations that Stephen has been talking about led to the immigrant being detained. And again... While that must have been absolutely nerve-wracking for our ancestor, it actually leaves us with even more great information to find. In our final segment, Stephen talks about the experience of being detained, the costs involved, the the records it created, and the variety of reasons for detaining an immigrant.
1: So, an ex-a-D or a held at the last left-hand side of the manifest between columns one or two, or the name column, means that the passenger was detained, or held for a more special inquiry. Most of these detained passenger lists are at the end of the manifest. So if you're looking for the manifest on, uh, for example, Ancestry, it's pretty easy just to forward through the manifest to get to the end of the manifest to find the record of detained passengers. If you're looking on microfilm, You can scroll to the end of the passenger list and find them there. On Ellis Island, it's very painful, the Ellis Island website, because you have to go through image by image by image, and wait for each image to come up. It's very, very slow. But there's a way around that. You can go to Steve Morse's website at www.stevemorse.org. And he has the utility there so that you can very quickly go to whatever image you want on one of the passenger lists. Now keep in mind, with these passenger lists, when I say that the list of detained passengers is at the end of the manifest, if you're looking at microfilmed copies, uh, some of these manifests were microfilmed backwards. And so the end of the list will be at the beginning of the roll. And if you go to the Ellis Island site, sometimes you'll notice, I don't know if you've ever noticed, that on a two-page manifest, Sometimes you have to get to the second page by clicking backwards instead of clicking forwards. So just keep in mind that some of these manifests were microfilmed backwards, and you might have to look in the opposite direction from what you expect. This is an example of a list of detained alien passengers. It has the same names that are on the regular passenger list. In fact, it's cross-referenced here with where you can find them on the rest of the manifest. And it will give you here a cause of detention. It'll indicate the disposition of the person. And down here at the end, it'll indicate how many meals they had on the asylum. So this is my aunt, Stephanie Chmielewski. And it shows that it uh, gives her group number and uh, gives a, a line number. So this indicates the page of the manifest and the line number on which she, is, she appears. So if you happen to find somebody in a detained list, you can easily cross-reference them to the regular list. It shows the number of aliens. So if she had been traveling with children, for example, it would indicate the total number of people in her party. Because the cause of detention, and here it just gives dinner marks, what it says in an upper line is to be tagged. and. The reason for her detention was that she was, they were waiting to hear from her brother. Stephanie was 14 years old when she came over to this country and she traveled alone. She had, they had the immigration officials had to find some relative who would take responsibility for her because they weren't going to just send her out into the streets of New York City on her own. So the disposition was to her brother, Joseph. It gives Joseph Timolesky's address in Worcester, Massachusetts. And it shows that she was discharged. Uh, Again, the the ditto marks refer to a date and the name of an inspector on a previous line. But here she was discharged at 1,500 hours. So at 3 p.m. she was discharged. She didn't stay around long because they they found her brother apparently. And to be tagged, means that literally she was being tagged to be sent on a train to Worcester, Massachusetts. And uh, she couldn't speak English, so a little tag that says, hi, my name is, I'm going to. Reasons to detain passengers. These detained passenger lists can say to brother, to sister, to cousin, to husband, to brother-in-law, or anything like that, to telegraph money. If the person didn't have enough money to get to their destination, then they got in touch with some relative, and and the immigration officials waited for the money to arrive by telegraph. If the person was a minor, they might be detained, detained to be tagged, as I mentioned, or no boat. So immigrants spend weeks getting across the ocean. And when they arrive in the United States, the boat does not dock at Ellis Island. It docks at the dock. And the passengers get off, and they wait for a boat to take them to Ellis Island. And so if uh, if a passenger ship arrived late in the day, for example, and there were no boats left to take the passengers to Ellis Island, those passengers had to stay at Ellis Island overnight. So here they, they come all this way, and they can't get Ellis Island. Or they, 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 they didn't stay at Ellis Island overnight. They stayed on the boat overnight, waiting to get to Ellis Island. <laughs> board of Special Inquiry. So here we have Justine Rode and two children, and it lists over here as I. She and her children were held for a Board of Special Inquiry. This is bad, bad news for Justine here. This means not only are they going to be detained, but they might get deported. So, the notation of SI or BSI, so special inquiry or board of special inquiry, at the left side means that the pass through is held. And you can look for a record of aliens held for special inquiry at the end of the manifest. And here it is. So, Justine Road. Here she is on the first line, and it shows, again, where she is on the regular manifest, and it shows that there's a party of three. For the cause of detention, it says LPC, which means likely public charge. The immigration officials thought that she was going to be a burden on the public and that she wasn't going to be able to take care of herself. And it further says here, pregnant. So she's pregnant with two children. And she's probably by herself. The immigration officials were worried that the government was going to end up supporting her if she immigrated. So they didn't want her here. She was going to get shipped back to wherever she came from. And it shows over here that she had a hearing. And the information about the hearing is shown here, the date of the hearing. And they decided that they are going to deport her. So she requested a rehearing, and the date of the rehearing is shown here. And at that time, apparently she had amassed enough support. Maybe she had some relative or friend in the country who said, "No, she's not going to be a public charge. She's going to be okay." And it shows here that she, in fact, was admitted to the United States, and and uh, so she finally got in. You'll notice down here, somebody else wasn't so lucky. Somebody else had a hearing, and then no admission. A lot of, most of these people on this list were finally admitted. But you can see some poor souls here did not get admitted. Over here on the right-hand side, you can see some additional notations. That indicates when and how they were deported. So over here, it indicates that uh, the name of the boat, I uh, it, and it gives the date on which you send back. Over on the right-hand side of the page are the numbers of meals that each person who was detained had while they were on Ellis Island. And you'll notice most people, it says that they had one breakfast, two lunches, and one supper. If somebody had children, for example, over here, there's a party of six. There were six lunches. So they were there for just one afternoon. Whereas you'll notice up here, poor Justina Road and her children, it says that they had 30 lunches, 27 breakfasts, 30 lunches, and 27 suppers. So if they were there for 30 lunches, there were three of them, they were there for 10 days waiting to have their case resolved. So they travel for weeks to get to the United States. Once they get here, they're told uh, you need to appear before a board of special inquisition. They're probably terrified, worrying that they're going to get shipped back, and it takes them ten days before they finally land into the country. This is the dining hall on Ellis Island, and you can see that probably the meals that they got there were not all that uh, lavish. Probably for one lunch, they got a bowl of soup, some bread. But um, just just to, to see if uh, if if you can guess, for all of these these meals that the immigrants received on Ellis Island. Who paid for them? The immigrants. No, nope, not the immigrants. Mm-hmm. The ship. Mm-hmm. Every month, these lists were tabled, and the total number of breakfasts, lunches, and suppers were totaled up and given to the ship, to company, and they had to pay for the sh- for any meals that the immigrants ate on Ellis Island. And this encouraged the shipping companies to make sure that before an immigrant got on the ship in the first place, that they were likely to get admitted. Because there were two things that would happen if somebody was not admitted. Or if if they were detained, the shipping company had to pay for their meals. If they were shipped back, the shipping company had to pay for their return passage. These are some of the grounds for exclusion, reasons why somebody might be deported before they even really entered the United States. Things like alcoholic, anarchist, cripple, fattest. Anybody know what that is, Davis, fattest? That was a scalp infection. And it was one of the things that doctors checked for when their immigrant got to the United States, to Ellis Island. It was uh, very common among immigrants, and so that was checked for. The person was feeble minded or an idiot if they were illiterate Now, illiterate did not count until, I believe, 1911 was when literacy was was checked. And the way that literacy was checked on Ellis Island was very interesting. Uh, Little slips of paper were written out in a number of languages. So for each language, whether it be French, German, Polish, Italian, Spanish, little phrases would be written in that foreign language. And there would be a corresponding piece of paper in English given to the inspector. And the immigrant would be given one of the pieces of paper and asked to read it and do what it said. And the papers would say things like, stand up, close the door, and then sit back down. And this would be written in Italian, for example. The person would do that. And if the person did that correctly, the inspector could look at his slip, which was written in English, and determine that the person could read their native language. They didn't have to read English. They just had to be able to read. And if the person did what the slip said, the uh, inspector didn't even have to know the foreign language to be able to tell whether or not they could read. So the slip might say something like, uh, get up, close the door, sit down, or turn to the right and shake the person's hand next to you. Something simple like that. They didn't have to read much, but they had to be able to read. Some other things here. Immoral, insane, loathsome contagious disease, LCD. (laughs) That's that's the next one. Medical reasons, mental, moral turpitude, polygamy, pregnant, senile, stowaway, trachoma. Trachoma was another disease, an eye infection, it was a bacterial infection of the eye that was very common among immigrants and that was checked for. Very contagious. Tuberculosis, vagrant, under 16. All of these were reasons to send somebody back. As the people were coming through the line, the immigration officials would mark with chalk on the immigrants' clothes one of these marks if if they needed some special uh, attention. So if they were a suspected mental defect, an X was written. If there were definite signs of a mental defect, it was an X with a circle. If the person was black, they would be marked with a B, although you wonder why they might be late. trachoma, problems with the eyes, face, feet, if they had goiter, Heart problems, a hernia, neck injuries, lameness, physical and long defects, pregnancy, scalp fungus, senility, or they're being otherwise sent to abort a board special inquiry. And these remember these, these marks would be written in chalk on their clothes. Another big grounds for exclusion was mental defect, and this is an example of the manual of the mental examination of aliens in 1918. So these inspection, inspectors were given an entire manual on how to check to see if somebody was a mental defective. And here's how they did it. They gave them pictures of people who had these mental defects. And so here's a picture of an alcoholic. And so the inspectors used this to determine whether or not somebody was an alcoholic when they came an example picture that shows what an insane person looks like. It says, facial rigidity and clenching of teeth. Well, you know, maybe he is insane, but he could just be having a really bad day. Grounds for exclusion, feeble-minded. We can only hope that that, that they did more than just look at their appearance. Hmm. And in fact, they were supposed to, because this part of the manual says, That idiots and imbeciles will, as a rule, hardly escape detection by experienced officers. Detection of higher grades of mental defectiveness offers, however, peculiar difficulties. In endeavoring to pick out aliens who may have mental defects, one is guided largely by their appearance, attitude, and conduct. Most experienced examiners agree that very little dependence can be placed upon appearance alone, although idiots and many imbeciles generally present some physical signs which immediately attract attention to the mental condition. And that's the basis on which the inspectors had to to determine whether or not somebody is a mental defect.
0: It's amazing to hear about the criteria that was used back in those days for determining a person's competency. Can you imagine being separated and pulled away from your family? And held simply because of just looking a little different and that being misinterpreted as a mental condition. Well, again, so many of our ancestors went through some trying times. And my thanks to Stephen Danko for giving us so much more of an insight into what to be looking for on the passenger list, what those marks mean, and um, reminding us that there's more there to discover. Stephen is a terrific speaker, as you can tell, and I highly recommend his website, which is stephendanko.com. I'll have a link for you in the show notes. And certainly, if you're a member of a genealogical society, he would be a terrific person to book to come in and speak to your group. And you could certainly contact him through his website to put that together. We're back. And um, just to recap, if you see a C slash A on the passenger list, it means a request for a certificate of arrival was made when the person filed for naturalization. Now, you might see a number like 1X-151953, something like that. That would be indicating that a request for a certificate of arrival was made after 1926 to help with that naturalization process. The first number in the sequence. Uh, In this case, number one would be the naturalization district. And then if there is an X, that just means that the person didn't have to pay for the certificate of arrival. And then all the numbers after the dash are the certificate of arrival number itself or the application number. There might be a date following that certificate of arrival number, and that would be terrific because that combined with the naturalization district is going to give you a really good idea of where to look for those naturalization records. And again, uh, Stephen mentioned that the V slash L means a verification of landing was requested, W slash A means a warrant of arrest was issued. And he also mentioned some form numbers very quickly um, for the verification. The forms were 404 and 405. So if you see those numbers, it just means that that was the form that they used to send the information to verify the landing to the INS. Now, if you see like a six-digit code, perhaps um, uh, Stephen gave me an example of 432731 um something like that that would be indicating that the passenger was a permanent resident of the US and that was that re-entry permit number that he talked about and finally i just want to reemphasize to everybody that your immigrant's journey was not just the page that you find them on in the passenger list really the entire passenger manifest is a record of your ancestors journey so while it may be very long, it's really worth taking the time of going through page by page and looking at all the pages. You might find indications that that ship had stopped at different ports along the way. Uh, you might actually notice names that you recognize, perhaps for relatives or even friends or coworkers. And as Stephen mentioned, you might even find a second entry for your ancestor, say in the case of changing their ticket. came in as a steerage passenger and upgraded to second class or first class, then you might find an indication of that as well. So, again, anything that occurs on that journey gets recorded or possibly some notations were made by the captain on that passenger list, and that's worth checking out. So, again, wonderful places to look for passenger lists would be Ancestry.com. You can either have a subscription to Ancestry, or you could go, again, to your family history library locally in your area. And typically, you can access Ancestry for free from the um, family history library, or you can also order the microfilm of those passenger lists from your family history library for a nominal fee. And of course, we've covered family history libraries here on the podcast. So be sure and go back and listen to those episodes. If you haven't visited before and you want to prepare yourself so you know what you're looking to do and ask for there at the centers, they're a wonderful resource. So again, remember, it's not just the page that your ancestor shows up on, and it's not just their name recorded, but it's all the marks. It's all the pages of the manifest that really represent your ancestor's journey. Well, that's going to bring us to the end of the show. You'll find the show notes for this episode, which include all the links I've talked about, at my website, genealogygems.com. And there you'll also discover a lot more tips and tools for finding your family history in my podcasts, the blog posts, books, and videos. Become a Genealogy Gems premium member, and you're also going to get access to exclusive content like my full-length video classes and the premium podcast episodes. We have a new one of those coming out every month. Now, if you have any questions about this episode, or if you'd like to share your experiences on how the podcast has impacted your own family history journey, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at genealogygemspodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com or leave a voicemail at 925-272-4021 and we might just play it here on the show. Thanks so much for listening, friend. I'll talk to you soon.